Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in.net. I'm Sean Clebby, your host, and with me today are your co-host Caleb Wells. Hey y'all. Hey, hey. How's it going? Good, good. And Joel Schobert. Hey Joel. Hey everybody, this is Joel. <laughs> hey, hey. That is Joel. Yeah, nice to have you here this week, Joel. I know you've been real busy, so it's nice to have you. And I guess I'll start things off with my tip of the week. One thing I was working on this week ended up flagging up some things for me. So I don't know if you guys ever compare things to either empty string or string dead empty. This is this variable equal to string dead empty. Do you know that that actually creates more instructions when it gets compiled than than using either the string is dot is null or empty function or comparing it to the length equal zero? Did not so, know that. Yeah, so if you're one of those performance nuts and just wants to make sure everything is is as good as it can be, don't compare things to string.empty or empty string. Use the dot length equals null or equals zero, or use the function for a string dot is null or empty. Oh, that's cool. Does the does the uh, length equals zero? Does that still work if it's null? It doesn't uh, crash. Uh, you do have to check its different behavior if it is null. So. If you use try to use length, you've got to also check for null if that could be a possibility. Of course, with the new null checking, you know uh, that should mm -hmm. be a, a different experience depending on what setting you have for uh, null reference checks. Great. All right. Our guest is all about performance, right? Is that is that right? I think you are right. Okay. Yeah. Our guest right. today, Aaron <laughs> Stenard. <laughs> Welcome, Aaron. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, are you all about performance? Oh yeah, you know my my sort of background with what I do. You know, I'm the uh, founder and CEO of a company called Petabridge. Uh, we help .NET businesses build highly scalable applications, and so my background is largely in performance from a distributed programming space. So the idea of being able to process as many requests per second uh, in sort of a horizontally scalable fashion, but uh, of course, part of uh, Part of accomplishing that also means performance optimizing our framework, so it introduces as little overhead as possible. Uh, we want uh, we want our customers' application code to uh, to basically be where most of the performance issues come from, not anything that we build ourselves. Do you want to improve the quality of your source code? There's a great solution: a static code analyzer. PVS Studio is a tool designed to detect errors and potential vulnerabilities in the source code programs written in C, C++, C Sharp, and Java. The analyzer can be used on Windows, Linux, and Mac OS. PVS Studio performs static code analysis and generates a report that helps a programmer find and fix bugs. It performs a wide range of code checks and is also useful in finding misprints and copy-paste errors. There's a good opportunity to get a month-free trial and save your project from bugs. Follow the link in the bio, download PVS Studio for free at devchat.tv slash PVS, and use the promo code ADV.net, A-D-V-D-O-T-N-E-T. Nice. You know, I've been around so long that I still have that every byte and every little bit of performance thing counts, even though processes are so, are so fast today that it's not such a concern. But it's just been my mindset since I ever got into development to, to try to be as conscious about that as I can. You know, the last part of, so before I moved to Texas a few years ago, uh, I was living in Los Angeles and running sort of a, a large scale analytics and marketing automation SaaS startup down there. Uh, but some of the folks we had in our space, you know, because like Activision headquarters was just down the street from me, for instance, we had a lot of uh, video game developers. 
And there was a story some old timers taught about performance, specifically uh, coming within the memory constraints of old consoles like the SNES, Atari, all that sort of stuff, where you know, one of the issues you'd run into is having, um, having your game be, be bigger than could fit into the memory on one of those old uh, cartridges you'd have to install in there. So one of the things the veteran programmers started doing, and this is like late 80s, early 90s, is day one of a brand new project. Let's say they're building a Final Fantasy game or something like that. The uh, senior developer would go ahead and allocate a, let's say, a, a one megabyte block of RAM or maybe a four megabyte block of RAM at the very beginning of the application. And so all the performance profiling and everything else that would happen across this team of several hundred developers would you know, try to basically get all the game assets and everything else under that sort of hard memory limit they were subject to. And inevitably, at the very end of the project, they're always racing to try to fit under this limit. There's a couple hundred, let's say, kilobits you just can't get, seem to get under. And that veteran programmer, once that, cons- once that uh, complaint would come up, would go ahead and just comment out that block reallocated four or five megs of, of memory at the very beginning. And all of a sudden, the game would come under its memory limit. You know? <laughs> That kind of reminds me. Yeah, it reminds me of one of my first computers, and I've I've said this on the show a a few times. My first computer had 4K of RAM. Oh wow! And I wrote a Hangman game for it. I could only fit 25 words before it would crash because of out of memory. So you know that's where you know my memory constraints first started. So I (laughs) yeah I I get that so much so much, but. Everybody was only going to need 640K, right? Right, right. You know, I'm kind of on the other side of that whole thing is is I was never into the memory side of things. But as far as CPU speed and power, I've had the fortune or misfortune to work a lot of jobs, even until very recently, where CPU throughput was a huge factor. One of them was like a big online stock trading company where you're just getting buried after market open and there's just never enough CPU to go around. And then a second one was I did some consulting out in Palo Alto for the airline industry, trying to uh, deal with all the traffic you get for trying to book airlines and looking up what seats are available and what flight and what price the ticket is going to be. So the look to book ratio is about 500 to 1, 500 looks for actually booking a flight. And so the amount of load that comes in is just crushing. And so we're actually, I've worked in some segments even till like last year still where CPU and optimizing things and measuring performance like over and over is still like a reality. Those two segments you mentioned right there, let's say doing a real-time flight search or doing things like algorithmic trading or even running an exchange are some of the types of things that my customers at Petabridge do. And they use uh, Akka.net, which is this distributed actor programming framework that I, that I co-created, I think like, gosh, must be six or seven years ago now, 2013, sort of when we started on it. And um, yeah, those are, those are exactly the types of spaces that, that I deal in on a day-to-day basis. You know, when I get asked, you know, sort of what does my business do? My technical answer for that is we help customers with distributed applications that require massive de- amounts of concurrency. You know, I helped one, I've helped one customer, an airline, uh, build that sort of inventory search, which has all sorts of fun problems with it. Namely that all of your flights and if you're bundling it with things like hotel rooms and rental cars, all of the inventory is highly perishable. Meaning that the sort of, um, you have to be able to run these sort of real-time searches that can be pretty broad in terms of the criteria. So you might want to you know, say, I want to find the cheapest possible vacation package for a family of four between any of these different possible destinations, but under this price range. 
the combinatoric space, meaning all the different parts of the information graph you have to search to complete that. And also because you're subject to e-commerce sort of constraints, where you have to get all that done in, let's say, five milliseconds. So that way you can actually begin serving up the response and getting it rendered. Because you want to have the total end-to-end time for that be in the neighborhood of maybe uh, 250 milliseconds total. That way you get the best possible conversion rate on the site when people are looking at booking something. There's a sort of a direct correlation between response times and conversion rate. But uh, that's, the, that's the type of thing people have used Akka.net for in the past. Where um, with these, So, so Akka.net is an implementation of the actor model, which we can get into. But what they do is they basically segment all the different parts of their domain into these logically independent actors, which all kind of function like their own little individual processes. And they'll go ahead and stick the entire search graph into those actors. Those actors can receive updates whenever a a flight gets booked or a hotel room gets booked, and that'll go ahead and reflect some of that inventory getting diminished. But the searches go ahead and run in memory inside a single process that might have like an entire copy of the search graph inside of it. And so they can handle hundreds of thousands of parallel queries uh, all in one box. And they can also replicate that across many boxes simultaneously. So that's some of the types of things that, that we help uh, help our customers design using, uh, using Akka.net to do it. Yeah, that looked great. Looking through your one of your reference materials, it had a really great write-up on that. So kind of at a high level, it looked like Akka.net, tell me if this is correct, it looked like Akka.net basically had actors and then probably message queuing between the different actors and then mm-hmm. each actor is protected by a serialized event queue. So you can control serialization and, and threading that way. Yep, every, every actor has its own... So, you know, the, the way people tend to think of sort of messaging systems are these really broad-based queue-centric systems where right. you dump all these events into end service bus or RabbitMQ or whatever. And then you have n number of sort of arbitrary consumers that pull messages off the queue and then put a little read receipt on the queue when that work's finished so that message can be reliably delivered. Exactly. Alka.net is a, is a decentralized version of that concept where rather than one big queue that all the messages pull from, each actor has its own independent in-memory queue. So it's really like hundreds of thousands or even millions of really small queues. And the backing implementation for that in Akka.net is just the concurrent queue structure from systems.collections.concurrent. It's tough to beat that in terms of performance. And in .NET Core, I think it was 2.1. And then again, in 3.0, they, they actually made that data structure much more efficient in terms of the, the internal sort of stuff it uses for managing different segments and growing the queue and that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, each actor is, as they use a very important word, is serialized. And when we say that, we're not talking about JSON serialization. We're right. talking about the sort of serial processing nature of those actors. Each actor can only process one message at a time. And um, the really big impact of that from an application design standpoint is it gives you a much simpler model for managing state concurrently inside your system. All of the state that is held inside private fields inside an actor is by by default always thread safe because the actor can only do one thing at a time when it's processing a message. It can only process that one message. And when it's done processing that next message, it moves on serially to the next message in the queue. So all those state transitions don't need to be protected with locks or synchronization mechanisms or anything like that inside the actor. So rather than having to work on this sort of complicated shared state concurrency model, which even experts screw up on a regular basis because it's 
it's difficult and not really um, being able to figure out what's the right way to protect a critical region or whether or not this read is really thread safe or not, or is that other piece of state I'm calling in this external library thread safe is just a notoriously complicated problem. By fragmenting all that work into many different actors, each one owning a small portion of the domain, you're able to go ahead and essentially guarantee, look, I don't care what's happening inside the other actors, but within this one actor that I'm looking at right now and I'm doing development, I want to make sure all those operations inside that actor are just working on um, working sort of on one message at a time. And therefore, all those state transitions, when I'm, let's say, adding items to a collection inside that actor, only one item can be added to that collection at a time because concurrent access is not possible in that design. So that's one of the sort of really important kind of paradigms behind the actor model, this idea of serial access and private state that is not accessible via method calls or anything else. The only way to get state out of an actor is to send it a message and the actor will copy its state into an immutable response object. It'll go ahead and basically make a copy and send it back. That way you don't get any side effects or anything else like that inside a, uh, an actor programming paradigm. There's nothing worse than trying to debug a parallel execution problem between uh, objects on multiple machines. That is literally the times that I've been stuck on one problem for up to weeks at a time. And, and having this alleviate that is fantastic. One question I had from one of your descriptions was, if I've got another actor I want to talk to, you said it's a decentralized version of queues. Is there a centralized middleware that I put it onto then to get over to that actor? Or I'm actually trying to manage which actor's queue I'm talking to from my actor object? So typically, so there's, the answer is you can do both. Typically, most actor communication, you basically get what's called an actor reference, which is essentially a handle for being able to send a message to another actor. Uh, that actor reference could be local, meaning that the actor you want to talk to is hosted inside the same process that you're in right now. And that just gives you a pointer directly to that actor's queue. That's what that does. But we also have the possibility of remote actor references, where the actor you want to talk to is actually hosted on another machine or maybe just a different process on the same machine, and you don't have access to its memory address space. Mm -hmm. So the only way you can send messages to it is through some sort of inner process transport. And the default that we use for that is a TCP connection. Using uh, one of the modules in the Akka.net framework called Akka.remote, makes it transparent for actors between multiple processes to communicate together. So there's a couple different actor messaging paradigms for how you talk to other actors. One approach is you can use what's called an actor selection, which is a way of essentially typing out an actor's address. Every actor gets its own globally unique URI for the network address space that it's in. So you can kind of look up an actor by its, by its address and communicate it with that way. But there's also a number of different abstractions built into Akka.net that make it so you, you don't have to do that. In fact, actor selections are usually a tool of last resort more often than not. We have what's called routers, which is th these actors that are able to find routees based on some of their criteria, such as where they might live in the actor hierarchy. Actors are organized in sort of a family tree structure using parent-child relationships. So you have your sort of topmost actor at the top of the hierarchy. That actor usually owns sort of a top level of a domain. So for instance, if you were building an IoT application, you might have a couple of different sensor families that you work with, or maybe different protocols in the IoT application. So for instance, if you're using Akka.net to automate uh, a factory floor, which is uh, actually a pretty common use case, you might have one actor that owns a, the family of all of the pickers that are used for picking things up off one assembly line and moving it. And you might have another actor that owns the camera protocol 
And the camera protocol might get used to figure out where is this object uh, on the conveyor belt? Because you only want to move the picker to go and get it when you know that object's in the right spot, right? So you might have a parent actor in the actor hierarchy that represents those two different protocols. And those, that actor itself might have a hierarchy of children underneath it that decompose all of that complexity down into smaller parts. So for instance, if you have four cameras, that parent actor might have one child for each of those actors, uh, for each of those cameras, excuse me. And then if those cameras themselves need multiple actors, maybe because they have one actor that's responsible for adjusting the focus, another that's responsible for doing an optical scan to figure out where on the Cartesian plane this device is. And then all that information might get communicated to the picker actor at, via a router of some sort. And that router might say, you know what, you should route all your messages to the actors that are in the picker part of the actor hierarchy. Now inside Akadot cluster, which is how you build like, like SaaS applications, really highly available applications that span multiple computers, tend to be built using Akadot cluster. Uh, there's a technology in there called distributed publish and subscribe that essentially uses a topic broker where an actor can say, I publish to this topic. And another actor on a totally different machine can say, I subscribe to this topic. And those subscriptions will get propagated throughout the network. So publishers and subscribers can talk to each other indirectly using that uh, pub-sub mechanism as a bit of a broker, brokering system for that. Now, the, uh, the actor pattern has been mentioned a lot here. Let's make sure that our listeners have an understanding of the basics of what the actor pattern is. The, the actor pattern is very old, actually, from a computer science concept. It's, um, it's showing up a lot more now in sort of everyday uh, sort of, you know, let's say enterprise software development because cloud computing has made the actor model uh, cost-effective again. The actor model was something that was originally proposed in the early 70s. I believe the actor model white paper was originally in 1973, which makes it only about two years younger than the relational database, just to kind of give you a good conceptual frame there. Was this one of the gang of four patterns or not? Oh, no, this, this no, predates that. Predates um, that, wow. But it's a, it's a very old idea that came from some of the early early thoughts on how to do concurrent programming. So computer scientists at this point in the early 70s envisioned that the way we would get large-scale computing is through these living room-sized machines that had tens of thousands of low-powered CPUs. Uh, so you know, these are the, you know, your old, you know, actually I'm blanking on the name of the Intel specs they even had at that time, but we'll, we'll put it this way. Those, those microprocessors they had back then aren't as powerful as the kind you can get in a calculator today, right? So their vision for how you'd build concurrent software back then, because you also got to remember, there wasn't really a concept of multi-threading yet either. That was an invention that came about 15 years later. Their conception was you'd go ahead and break up a program into different actors, and each actor would inhabit its own core. And these different cores would work together by sending each other messages through shared memory, since that was something all the cores could plug into as a common communication layer. And that was the original idea behind the actor model. So it was meant to be a way of doing highly concurrent programming when we thought the way computers would evolve was these big living room-sized machines with thousands of, of CPUs in them. Moore's law kind of eliminated the entire impetus for doing that. We ended up getting a bunch of computers with a small number of really powerful CPUs instead. But where the actor model came back into use was in the late 80s with the emergence of the internet and networking. And specifically, it was Ericsson who brought the actor model back to life. They were building some of the first digital telephony exchanges, and they invented an actor runtime that is now known as Erlang to do that. 
the Erlang-based actor model, which is kind of the original reference implementation for, for all the different actor models that have come since, is this idea that your application gets broken up into hierarchies of actors. The actors towards the top of the hierarchy own the biggest part of the domain. And then as you move down through their children, they basically own smaller and more tightly bounded parts of the context. So from a domain-driven design perspective, if you, you know, have any uh, users who are familiar with that, the top-level actors represent the aggregate root, and the leaf node actors at the bottom are the most tightly bounded context of all. That's sort of how the actor hierarchy works. Now, the way actors do work is you don't invoke methods on them, you send them messages. That's what basically causes an actor to get scheduled for execution. And that actor will process a burst of messages out of its queue. And some of the work that actor can do while it's processing messages can include you know, doing normal object-oriented programming stuff like writing to a database or calling a web service or whatever. You can do that. You can spawn other actors. You can go, you basically can create new actors and delegate work to them if you want. You can send messages to other actors. Uh, you can also do things like change your behavior. You can change the way you process a message while you're in the middle of processing one. See, that allows you to build things like finite state machines using actors. And so the actor model makes a few basic promises using this infrastructure. The first promise is that every actor has a globally unique address, meaning that if you need to send a message to an actor over a network, once you, know, once you have a reference to that actor or you know what the actor's address is, you can reliably communicate with that actor so long as you know that it exists. The second guarantee is that every actor will process exactly one message at a time. Now, there are some actors in Akka.net that break that promise, such as routers, where they can process multiple messages concurrently, but that's because they don't have any state. Those actors are essentially static, would be a way of thinking about it. They're static actors, so therefore they, they don't need to be subject to that same guarantee. And then the last guarantee that actors make is that they will process every message in the order in which it's received. So by default, they're going to use first in, first out processing. So if you want to send, let's say, a control sequence to an actor, where you say, you know, I want this device this actor's talking to. If we go back to the IoT example, I want uh, this camera to go ahead and adjust its focus, give me an XY coordinate reading, and then I want to move the picker to go ahead and grab the object at those coordinates. Well, if you want to make sure those messages execute in that operation, and you have one actor that kind of sits on top of all those devices, you just send that actor those messages in that order. And that's the order in which they'll get executed. So those are kind of the basic promises of what the actor model is. But the overall goal of why do we have it in the first place, why is it something we should care about, is because concurrent programming is too hard doing it any other way. Um, for, for applications that are, let's say, um, highly dependent on state and state management, there are some, there's some other concurrent programming models you can use when you're not as dependent on, on state. But the actor model is designed to provide you with a clear and understandable uh, methodology for separating your state and reasoning about it in a way that even a programmer who, let's say, doesn't have a, a master's degree can, can manage. Um, so the actor programming model is designed to really provide a much more user-friendly way for solving some of those problems Joel talked about of having to be able to go ahead and have two different processes running in parallel and being able to understand predictably what each one of them is going to do given the messages that they were sent. That's one big reason for it. Uh, the other big reason for having actors, aside from just concurrent programming, is they're very good at building highly fault-tolerant and self, what are called self-healing systems. 
actors exhibit a very high degree of fault isolation, meaning that if one actor throws an unhandled exception, let's say because it received a, I don't know, a malformed uh, message, or maybe there was a network failure when it was trying to talk to remote service, one actor crashing has no side effects on any of the other actors. And that actor, when it crashes, will automatically be restarted by its parent actor. So the behavior that actors have when they fail is also designed to be highly predictable. So that's another one of the big benefits behind the actor model. And that's one of the reasons why Ericsson was so insistent on using that methodology for building their digital telephony networks with Erlang originally. They wanted to have the ability to recover from fail- from errors without dropping phone calls or messages. They also wanted to have the ability to scale horizontally. They predicted quite accurately that as cellular networks began to you know, increase in popularity, the amount of strain that would be put on the software and hardware they deployed would go up. And it'd be much less expensive for them in the long run to have a horizontally scalable software system, meaning that if I want to double the capacity of my network and let's say a big city, like um, Detroit or New York, a much cheaper way of managing that is rather than having to redesign it uh, you know, every N number of years to be more and more efficient, would be just to double the amount of hardware that's there. And if I can accurately predict that if I double the amount of hardware, I'm actually going to get double the capacity with no diminishing returns, that gives you a scalable model for being able to support growth in an application like that. And that's one of the other driving factors behind adoption of the actor model today. It's used in a lot of popular consumer and enterprise-facing applications that exhibit those types of growth behavior. A good example would be those airline uh, search, uh, search engines. We're looking for prices. But other applications that we can all relate to are things like multiplayer video games. You know, How many times have you fired up a brand new Blizzard game or something else, and that game has day one launch issues because they couldn't scale the multiplayer system to support all of the day one demand, right? We're talking about the unemployment systems right now. Yeah, there you go. Yo, that's I guess that's one of those systems that you would hope you'd never have to scale it up that much. But, <laughs> but you know, blame but, it on uh, Cobol, life, right? Life right, has a way of happening, you know? <laughs> right. Ain't that the truth? Yep. Um, Aaron, I, I actually, uh, I have a question kind of goes back to how you got started with Anka.net. What was, oh, the, sure. what was the impetus for actually developing the, the, uh, the project? Well, that's a that's a good story. So I like I, good stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, as a 24-year-old, I wrote a blog post about how difficult it was to start a technology startup using .NET as your technology of choice. Um, yeah, so okay. this would have been around 2010. 2010. And that article um, made it onto the front. This is like 4th of July weekend, 2010. That article made it onto the front page of Hacker News and about 40% of the IP addresses that looked at it came from Redmond, Washington. <laughs> and so someone on Microsoft's evangelism team eventually read it and forwarded it on to the people there who would eventually become my coworkers. They, they reached out to me because of that blog post and hired me to be a startup developer evangelist for Microsoft's BizSpark program, which was designed, among other things, to get people to start using Azure back in 2010, full decade ago. So I got started... I sort of really, so I've been a .NET developer for a while. I had a startup that I tried to launch doing uh, social media measurements was the name of it. It was kind of meant to be like a, um, 
Twitter analytics before Twitter analytics was a thing, right? So I tried doing that back in uh, 2010, just on, on my own. I realized I was out of my depth. I didn't quite know enough uh, about uh, large-scale software programming to uh, to do that. But I got a job with Microsoft shortly thereafter, and I spent two years uh, working with venture-backed startups in Los Angeles. And you know, um, even though people tend to think of startups mostly coming from Silicon Valley, there's quite a few big ones that were being developed in LA at that time. Uh, Snapchat and Tinder being two that I can recall off the top mm. of my head. But uh, anyway, long story short, in 2012, we're getting ready to launch Windows 8 at Microsoft. The Windows Store is supposed to be the biggest software developer opportunity of a lifetime, the App Store for, for Windows. And I have all this great intelligence from Microsoft about how big that's going to be and how, what we're going to do with it and how the size of the economic opportunity. And I say to myself, this is a fantastic opportunity to quit Microsoft and start a venture-backed software company selling services to the software developers building for that store. And since I had a background in analytics, uh, I wanted to um, go ahead and build the first real-time analytics service for Windows Store developers. We launched uh, an analytics service built on top of Amazon Web Services, ASP.NET MVC, uh, originally, we used RavenDB, but we had some scaling problems with that. So we migrated to Apache Cassandra. And that first product did fantastic. We, we had a few days where we experienced 600% growth three days in a row <laughs> in terms of the amount of traffic on the system. But small problem. App analytics is a highly commoditized space. And even though we offered a bunch of additional value that you couldn't get from tools like Google and everything else, no one was willing to pay for it. So we decided that we needed to come up with a way to add more value to our product. Otherwise, we weren't going to be able to raise more money and we were going to lose all of our jobs. And I was going to lose my life savings that I put into this company. So we decided the way to go about it was introducing uh, real-time uh, marketing automation. The ability to send users targeted push notifications based on what they did or did not do inside the application. So we could send someone like a discount offer to buy something, some add-on, in-app purchase or something for their their software. But in order to build a real-time system like that, a real-time event-driven system, you cannot, and I'm saying this with 100% certainty, you cannot build a product like that using CRUD. It's not, te it's not technically feasible, and I'm sure there's a theorem out there that can prove it. And the reason why is the latencies involved in well, the latencies involved in receiving requests, turning them into database queries, sending that over the network, getting that turned into execution plan, committed, getting the act back and all that stuff uh, becomes insurmountable at even a pretty small amount of volume. I mean, we were doing 100 million transactions a day, and most of those would occur in a three-hour period. So that's, that's a lot of, that's like 500 megabytes of event data per second at peak hours. That's a, that's a lot for a, a three-man startup to handle. So we ultimately came to the conclusion that we needed to be able to solve two problems in order to build this marketing automation product. First is we had to have a, a very rapid fire way of consolidating all of the state around whether someone was qualified for a campaign or not. We had to have a way to make sure that state could be found in a single location inside our application. And we had a reliable way of knowing where that was. The second thing we determined that we needed was that state needed to live inside the application rather than the database. In other words, it had to be in memory state. That way, during a period where a user was live and doing things inside the app, our telemetry SDK would send information back to our services, and that data would make it into whatever our application object was, and it would go ahead and test to see which campaigns that this app developer has paid for does this user qualify for. Mm -hmm. And you know what? 
turned out that actors are the perfect solution for that type of problem because actors live forever. They're cheap. And once I, and I can basically figure out, even inside a distributed system where nodes are being spun up and spun down using auto scaling, I can reliably figure out where the actor is that owns state for that one user inside my system using a technique called consistent hashing in that case. Um, but uh, that allowed us to go ahead and build that product. And that was really what inspired us to port the ACA framework from Scala, which is where it was originally written, and port it to C Sharp. And then, lo and behold, that project got adopted by a ton of other users other than my company. And it became the ACA.net project, which has been going now for yeah, about seven years. So that's, that's kind of the, the, the backstory behind where it came from. Aaron, in that example that you just gave, when you've got all those objects representing users in their state and you want to know like what campaigns they're eligible for and what they might be eligible for, when they're not on the site, do those get spun down and taken out of memory so you don't consume copious amounts of memory? Or what's the strategy on memory management? That's an excellent point. Since actors can live forever, uh, if you continuously spin up new actors, you're going to eventually run into a problem if you don't kill some of them, <laughs> which is that you run out of memory, right? It's a harsh world. It's a harsh world. Do the analogies around actors are, are the human analogies around actors are terrible. Like in our trainings, we we talk about killing children all the time, you know. Um, and so you, you got to be careful not to take any of that literally. <laughs> but the um, yes, just, please, <laughs> audience, not literally. <laughs> the gist of it is is that one of the patterns that we tend to employ is called passivization, which means that. When a resource inside your application has completed persisting its state, let's say, so Akadot Persistence is part of Akadot.net that allows actors to use this event sourcing model to automatically journal their state to some append-only log, essentially. And the backing store for that could be SQL Server, could be Azure Table Storage, could be Redis. There's a lot of different, lot of different vehicles for that. But what you ultimately do is once the actor has completed persisting all of its state, and let's say it hasn't received a new message for longer than 10 seconds, 30 seconds, maybe 10 minutes, kind of depends on your use case. At that point, you have the actor shut itself down. And so that all the references that were pointing to that actor get invalidated. So they can't send the actor a message anymore. If you try to send an act a ref, if you try to send a message to a reference to an actor that's died, that message will appear in the sort of special dead letters collection. Uh, which basically means the message was undeliverable. And you'll see that show up in your logs in Akka.net. And so you want to make sure your actors that are state-driven are essentially always going through the process of passivating themselves. Otherwise, you'll, you'll end up running out of memory eventually. So good rule of thumb, uh, there's, a, there's a piece of code that's built into Akka.net called a receive timeout, is to go ahead and always use those on actors that, are, that track the lives of entities specifically. There's other types of actors that are kind of more utility players. For instance, an actor that might process database queries or something like that. Those actors you don't need to kill because you only need a finite number of them. And those actors are basically just command processors. They just do stuff when you tell them to. If an actor doesn't have anything to do, it doesn't use any CPU. But an actor, if it's alive, will always use a bit of memory. Right. And then uh, related to that, I know you talked earlier about a couple of principles for these actors have a GUID. If you do get pacifies and kind of taken out and then you get brought back up, do you have the same GUID or is the GUID unique to that instance? Well, so the actor has a, U a sort of a URL 
And that mm-hmm. URL will be the same each time, although it kind of depends on where in the network that actor gets created because it has the host address appended to it. Mm-hmm. But the actor's position in the hierarchy will be the same. Gotcha. However, we add this little like random long integer, the kind of good bit to it at the end, and that's going to be different each time. And that's what we use for detecting different incarnations of actors gotcha. in the event that an actor gets killed on one machine or recreated on another. There's a, a piece of technology that's built on top of Akadot Cluster uh, called Cluster Sharding, which gives you a way of sort of resurrecting actors on demand by sending a message to them, uh, where it'll go ahead and automatically recreate that actor from scratch, and it'll route the message to it. And the Cluster Sharding system will also be responsible for doing things like making sure there's an even distribution of actors across the cluster. Uh, that's another thing that it's responsible for. I have a question as far as Akka actors are concerned, right? It's a, it's a different way of, of managing your, your data distributed and, and right fast response time based on needs. How does that, how do you factor in the database then? How does, how does that change how you read and write to your database? So this is a fantastic question. When I'm doing one of my trainings, you'll often, you'll often hear me say, that the biggest cost using the actor model isn't learning the syntax. It's the, fa- it's the paradigm shift that it introduces when it comes to reasoning about how you deploy and build applications. If the actors are your... So the, the reason why, by the way, most of us use... Most of us use a database for doing two things. And we, we don't often think of them as distinct activities, but they really are. The first activity is persisting data, meaning that in the event the application shuts down and restarts, it has a way of referencing all that old state again. But the way we really commonly use databases is a bit of a cheat, if, if you want to think about it this way. We also use databases to create the source of truth in our application. That's the second way we use them. So in the actor model, what's different is the database is no longer the source of truth. The database is only meant to be a parking spot for your state when you're not using it, or a place you can go and recover it later. So databases really primarily get used in the actor model as a place to journal uh, actor state when it's being modified, and then to recover that state again when the actor restarts. Now, that's not to say there's not some applications using actors where you'd wanna do traditional sort of like SQL queries and that sort of thing. Uh, there's plenty of those, but in general, the whole part of the idea behind the actor paradigm is to decentralize state and to be able to spread it out across a cluster. That's what allowed, like I used that example of Ericsson with Erlang earlier, that's what allows for horizontal scalability, is the fact that because the source of truth is distributed throughout these actors, and those actors themselves can be distributed across multiple machines, that's what makes an actor system horizontally scalable. Because if I double the amount of hardware that is running inside the Aka.net cluster, I now have double the number of different locations where those actors can live inside the network, right? So Mm -hmm. the source of truth gets distributed throughout there. When it comes to sort of scaling large-scale software, you know, you really run into um, kind of a handful, a handful of sort of fundamental design problems. But the big one that gets you in trouble is centralization. When you introduce single sources of anything inside your system, you're introducing natural bottlenecks and single points of failure that can form inside your system. So the kind of chief idea behind the actor model is to push a lot of that business logic and state out to the edges of your system because you can always grow the number of edges, but you can't grow, for instance, let's say the um, number of replicas of your database that you have all that easily if you're using SQL Server. 
Is that par- does that sort of paradigm shift that I explain that well? Yeah, no, it's 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 a it's a similar shift to one of our other recent episodes, CQRS. It's mm-hmm. you, you kind of got to flip things on its side, throw out some of your your known conventions. I guess especially coming from a kind of like you said a .NET world and and how we tend to develop. So that's that's absolutely right. And CQRS gets used. CQRS, domain-driven design, and event sourcing all tend to get used in combination pretty frequently, and the actor model is a very good fit for implementing that. Do you ever have trouble just getting into the flow? You find that your tool is great, like Visual Studio, but you could just get more out of it or get some stuff out of your way or have it give you better feedback that you would be able to get into flow easier. Well, let me tell you about Code Rush. Code Rush actually solves this problem for you. So the first thing that it does is it actually gives you a visualizer on the way that the code is set up, and it actually helps you debug stuff in an intuitive way that makes it easy for you to figure out what's going on. This really helps me stay in the flow when I'm trying to write code. Another thing that it does is it has a whole bunch of navigation options that you can get used to. Now, this is something that I figured out with Emacs was something that I really got into. So when I started using Emacs, just the key bindings and and kind of the natural flow of things made me a much, much more efficient programmer. And the quick navigation in Code Rush is awesome. You should definitely try it out. They have code analysis, so they'll pick out some of the issues maybe for complexity or diagnose some other code issues. It'll point out code smells. It'll help you refactor your code. So the code analysis is another thing where I don't have to actually go in and sit down and think, okay, have I made any mistakes in this code? Because it actually highlights them. And finally, it just validates like your code coverage and all of the other things that you're trying to look at and gives you real numbers and real feedback on the quality of your coding and the quality of your tests. So go check out Code Rush. You can get it at devexpress.com slash products slash Code Rush, or just go to devchat.tv slash Code Rush, and it'll send you to the right place. Once again, that's devchat.tv slash Code Rush. Cool. So what's the best way for somebody to get started with learning the actor model and using Akka.net and uh, just get familiar with it? Well, we do have a step-by-step course uh, that's available uh, for free. It's hosted on GitHub. The the URL, if you want to get access to it, is just learnaka.net. And that's kind of a a sort of a three, there's three different sections. And I think the total number of lessons is like 17 or so. It's kind of a learn by doing course. And that'll teach you some of the actor model concepts. And that'll also teach you the syntax for working with aka.net. Uh, but that's probably the best way to start learning it. It's a good learn by doing exercise. And then um, the other uh, the other good ways to go about learning it, there's a ton of Pluralsight courses on it, at least for Akka.net alone, there's at least a dozen up there. Uh, that's another good way of doing it. Uh, we also have a samples repository in the, the uh, Petabridge organization that has a bunch of like full-blown Kubernetes examples and that sort of thing where we show you how to go and run Akka.net like in kind of a production grade environment. Uh, that'd be another good one to look at. Uh, so there's plenty of resources because the, the framework's been around long enough now where there's kind of a lot of, um, lot of resources that have, that have been developed uh, independently of the project itself, developed just by people who are fans of it and enjoy using it. Great, Aaron, uh, when you were going over that example of not having the uh, database be the source of truth, I thought of like a great example from when I was working on that massive online stock trading system is one of the things we always wished is that when a user came in a log somewhere, 
we had some idea what a session was, what the user was, just a few key facts about them. And then we could get the rest by going all the way down to the database and kind of rehydrate, you know, what positions they had open in the market and all that. But what we couldn't do is easily float between different web servers because there wasn't this nice floating concept of state that could kind of tie the whole mesh together. Mm-hmm. And so the cheat for that would be go up into the routers and say, once a user comes from a certain IP address, he's sticky and he can only go to that same machine. Yeah. Well, that's pretty good. I mean, it's okay. It's okay and it kind of works, but as a developer, you really wish you could solve that problem instead of that being a networking issue. Actors are perfect for doing that. And the reason why is because if you're using Akadoc Cluster, which is the the right tool you would use uh, in that type of uh, use case, in Akadoc Cluster, every single node in the cluster can talk to every single other node. In other words, you have full awareness of what your network topology looks like. So a request hitting server A can go to the cluster and say, find me the the actor that owns this user's identity. And you have some way of essentially mapping that to an actor identity. That's one of the things that cluster sharding can do. Or a consistent hash router might be another way of doing that inside Akhenaten. And that'll let you go ahead and make sure all those messages, regardless of which web server they arrive on, all get routed to the same actor inside a single location. Fundamentally, that whole methodology that actors use for being able to make sure all the state can be consolidated in one location in memory, that's all reliant on a very old uh, mathematical methodology called consistent hashing, ideally. And um, that's, so that's been around since, I think, the 70s as well, that, that sort of technique. Consistent hashing is basically a technique where any node in the cluster, uh, as long as it knows who the other nodes in the cluster are, can compute the hash of, let's say, some entity ID, and one of the nodes in the cluster will own the hash range that hash value sits inside of, and any of the other nodes in the cluster can independently uh, compute that same hash value based on the same hash key, and all the messages get routed to that same place inside the network. Yeah, that's great, like a computable URL to some degree. Yeah, exactly. And if one node leaves the network, uh, all those hash ranges get recomputed, essentially. Uh, because the the, to- the let's say the um, the uh, numerator and the divisor, you know, so the the divisor in this case shrinks when you go ahead and take one node out of the cluster, so they can recompute those hash ranges. And uh, in the case of Akadot cluster, they'll actually go ahead and redistribute uh, where the entities are, and they'll say, okay, we need to hand off this entity from this node to this one in order to guarantee an even distribution. And while that's happening, it'll go ahead and pause message delivery to those actors until they've had a chance to move from one location to another. How does how does Akka handle exceptions or error states in in actors and then as a whole? Oh, this is a great question uh, because the way a- the way actors do it is pretty different than you know traditional OOP for sure. So <clears throat> since actors are organized in these hierarchies and these hierarchies are just parent child relationships, so it looks mm-hmm. like a family tree. If I, if I went ahead and did a printout of a running actor hierarchy, uh, in fact, we've got, we do have a, a tool that'll let you do that. Uh, but if I did a printout, you, you'd go ahead and see that when you visualized it. The way actors handle failure is through a model called, as the name implies, parental supervision. So if a child actor crashes and throws an, an unhandled exception, uh, what will happen is that actor will be suspended, meaning that its mailbox will get will be well a, a little bit will get flipped on the mailbox saying you are now on the off position. It's in which, a timeout. It's yeah, on timeout. Time in the corner, yep. 
<laughs> the actor gets put on timeout and a message gets sent to the actor's parent saying this child failed and here's the exception that they threw and the parent can decide based on which child failed and what the exception was how it wants to handle that exception by default akadanet uses and this this all goes all the way back to erlang by the way this the strategy i'm talking about uh the user strategy called just let it crash where when an actor throws an unhandled exception the parent will go ahead and just reboot that actor in place. So what will happen is all the actor references and the actor's identity, that stuff's all still valid. None of that changes. And the actor doesn't lose any of its messages inside its mailbox, the queue that it processes from. But we're going to take the current instance of that actor. That's where all the actor's internal state and its properties and fields are. The actor is the class that you code yourself as a .NET developer. We're going to go ahead and take the current instance of that actor we're going to kill it. We're going to go ahead and recreate a new one, hook it back up to its, to its actor reference and its mailbox and have it resume processing messages from there. And that act of having an actor restart is transparent to everybody else. No one else needs to know the actor crashed and restarted. That's kind of the default way actors get supervised. And the reason why we do that, why would you want to restart a piece of code? Well, the reason is, is that if you understood why that actor was going to throw an exception, you'd probably handle it in a try-catch block, right? right? If you get a SQL timeout exception, I think you can figure out why that actor failed. But if you get an invalid operation exception, who knows what that means? So that means there might be something wrong with your actor's state. Like this actually might be a real programming error, not like a transient runtime error that you expect to happen from time to time. When that happens, do you want to let that actor that threw the invalid operation process the next message without restarting? Probably not. It's much safer and more predictable to reboot that actor back into whatever its, its last known safe state was. And we do that using what's called the props. Uh, props is basically a formula you use for defining an actor's type, its constructor, and its arguments it's going to be fed into its constructor when it starts. We'll go ahead and recreate the actor from its props. The actor will go ahead and run one of its lifecycle methods, this method it runs before it begins receiving any messages. And if the actor needs to retrieve state from the database or whatever, it can do it in that method. And then once the actor starts processing messages, it picks up from where it left off again. So the idea of rebooting that piece of code back into its uh, last known safe state is seen as a, a much more predictable way of managing faults inside an application than what we normally do as OOP developers which I call the dig out method, where we have a bunch of try catch blocks and we try to claw our way back to, back, to, back to finding a safe mode to run in. Now, when an error gets thrown, actors have a lot more flexibility than just restarting a child. You can also, A, kill that child permanently. Let's say if an actor failed so badly that, there was, that restarting wouldn't even fix it, you might just want to go ahead and choose to just terminate it permanently. Uh, which means the actor is going to dump all of its messages it didn't process into the dead letters queue, that sort of thing. You could do that. Or if, let's say your actor threw an exception, and the exception meant that, let's say, that entire area of the domain needed to be rebooted. So, for instance, we've used this IoT example. Let's say uh, we get a notification back that we've lost our, our feed for being able to talk to a camera. Let's say we're using, oh, I don't know, an, uh, an, an analog socket or something like that. We can go ahead and use what's called an escalate directive to say, I want to propagate this. I want to treat this exception like my failure. And I want to ask the grandparent to restart me. So I can trigger a rolling restart of that entire part of the application if, 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 I, if I want to. 
Uh, we use that inside Remote for, for closing sockets, for instance. When the, uh, the read side of the socket blows up, it goes and reports that exception to the right side of the socket. And then the right side of the socket escalates that to its parent, which ends up restarting both parts of the actor hierarchy. So that way we can go ahead and make sure that we don't accidentally leak socket connections uh, inside, our, inside our clusters and that sort of thing. Um, I think, uh, I think uh, rebooting the actor, I think, is known as the c- Control-Alt-Delete pattern. <laughs> yeah, they have a much more boring name for it in Erlang, the error kernel pattern, but control of deletes better. I uh I, I do like uh the idea of just letting it crash and burn, right? You got you gotta let your kids fail, at least in programming. <laughs> at least in programming. Um, Fair enough. I've got a question about that. So one of the things that I find that I run into that's a little little bit uh difficult is you get your Whatever code it is, wouldn't have to even be actor-based code, but you get it done, you get it ready, you've passed a bunch of your tests, and then you get it out there, and you run into what I call a data-driven bug. So a new kind of data hits one of your objects or your actors, and it's just going to crash it. And in queuing theory, this would be called like the poison message problem. Mm -hmm. So if you get that to one of your actors, and every time it's restarted and wakes up, it gets that same message and dies, what ends up happening then? Uh, When an actor crashes and restarts, the message that it was currently processing, what that caused it to throw that exception, doesn't automatically get queued back into the mailbox. What happens is, is there's a method called on restart. It's a lifecycle method for the actor. That gets called on the incarnation of the actor that's about to be destroyed and recreated. Basically, you feed the exception and the message that threw it into this method, and the actor can decide what to do with it. The actor can send that message back to itself so it can reprocess it. It can ignore it. Uh, it can just log it and then not do anything with it. Or it could try sending that message to maybe its parent if it wanted to. So what's the licensing like on Aka.net? Well, Aka.net is a .NET Foundation open source project, and it's licensed under Apache 2. So anyone can just pick it up and start using it uh, any time they want, really. The way we make money on Aka.net is, we, I guess we have a couple different business models that Petabridge has. Uh, we sell trainings. Uh, so online or pre-coronavirus, we did a lot of on-site trainings <laughs> at, uh, at companies' offices. Hopefully, we'll get back to doing that again uh, in the near future. But that's one thing that we do. Uh, we do a lot of consulting, so architecture reviews, that type of thing. And then we have some uh, developer support plans that we sell for questions that come up on an as-needed basis from some of our developers. So you know, I was handling a, a troubleshooting call earlier this morning uh, with a... Um, company that had some problems when their firewall went berserk and spiked the CPU and all their machines and dropped about 80% of their packets for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> that was fun. Um, so we help with things like that. And then we also sell some um, application performance monitoring software on top of Aka.net. And that's called Phobos. And that allows you to do things like trace sort of end-to-end a message entering the system from, let's say, ASP.NET, a bunch of messages being sent around the cluster, and eventually a response being sent back as a you know, HTTP response. Or maybe it might even result in a message being sent you know, to Azure Service Bus or something like that. Phobos will help trace all of that. And then Phobos will also do uh, metrics, so keeping track of important uh, runtime statistics for how our applications performing. So we sell that as kind of a, a proprietary add-on on top of Aka.NET. Nice. So, yeah, it really makes it so that there is no excuse for somebody that's interested in this to, to get started and try it out. No, absolutely not. It's, um, you know, Aka.net, like I said, it's a part of the .NET Foundation. They're the ones who uh, hold the uh, copyright on the, uh, on the source. 
Um, so that means that even if our business was to, to suddenly disappear, we've been around for five and a half years, so I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> but in the event that there was an issue, uh, there's always some the, 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 there's always a foundation there that backs up the source. And everything's licensed under Apache 2, which is very commercially friendly. So anyone can pick it up and start building a business application with it anytime they want. You know, speaking of getting started with it, Aaron, as, like, as you're going through this, if I was going to paint a picture for someone who like, let's say they're fairly strong with object-oriented design, it seems like at the first blush, a lot of the actor thing is going to seem like pretty similar. Maybe some of the differences are going to be the idea that things live in a hierarchy. That'd be a bit new, like that your, your example where one object owns all the cameras and then has sub-objects. That's not necessarily come up with in just straight OO design. And then probably the other addition is just awareness of concurrency, like whether you're going to have something run on the same process or the same machine or a different machine. It seems like there's going to be a little bit of the concurrency design thrown in that maybe would require somebody that at least understood the basics of parallelism and multi-machine issues. You would have, at the very least want to try to understand parallelism. Um, because actors are, by design, intended to be run in parallel with each other. So that would be one thing. You don't necessarily need to get into a lot of you know, crazy computer science level sort of complexity on that to, re to really grasp it. But the idea that this actor will send a message to another actor and that other actor might process it, it, it might process it you know, several milliseconds later, potentially. That there's the, the, the messaging is all asynchronous by default on Akita.net. So that'd be one thing. But otherwise, yes, actors uh, still are very much within the realm of object-oriented programming. But I would argue there is one very important thing they do that is directly from functional programming. And as fate would have it, this is a, a brand new uh, language feature they added to C-sharp 7, which is actors use pattern matching to do all of their message processing. Mm -hmm. So when an actor receives a message, that message is going to be initially you know, untyped. It's an object. And the actor is going to go ahead and use, either you can use a receive actor, which is this sort of uh, syntax that Akka.net uses that's uh, strongly typed using uh, generics, basically having a bunch of generic type handlers for methods. Or you can use what's called an untyped handler, or excuse me, an untyped actor, which will just use a switch statement to determine what this message's type is and how to handle it. So uh, that, that's one sort of functional programming paradigm that you'll get a lot of exposure to in Akka.net is this notion of, pass, of uh, pattern matching on message types. And frankly, since that's kind of becoming part of the, the lingua franca of .NET, now that C Sharps really began uh, using that heavily, and Microsoft's using that feature in a lot of their reference samples and everything else, that's something that probably should be, or at least will be, a lot more familiar to Akadana users than it has been historically. Great, great. You know, another thing I was really interested in, you, when you're talking about sort of the history of, of how you sort of fell into this and talking about the company that was doing the analytics and processing and mm -hmm. just found that you just couldn't meet the concurrency. I mean, I've been there on different projects where the concurrency is literally the roadblock. When you were back at that point, kind of looking at that, how did you uh, make that decision to choose whether or not to just use something existing like Erlang? Oh, boy. That is a, um, that is a, a very fun question. <laughs> um, so our development team was small at that company. It was just me and, and really two other full-time engineers at the time. That, and I was also the CEO responsible for fundraising, working with customers, payroll, you name it. Wore a lot of hats. But I was also the lead architect for this product. We had had a lot of experience developing our tooling in, across different languages, our SDK for gathering analytics and metrics, in other words. So we had, you know, I, man, 
this is going to be this is going to be gruesome, but I'll, I'll just I'll talk through it. So I had to build to support Windows desktop applications. We, we basically moved some of our marketing automation from like just the Windows Store to supporting like old school Windows desktop, like Win32 applications. One of our sort of um, pilot customers was a Java shop. And so we had to go ahead and build a Java library, equivalent or telemetry library. We had to go ahead and build a wrapper in Java. And then we also had a bunch of customers shipping C++ library uh, applications as well. So the way we decided to go ahead and try to support them was our core instrumentation library that we had been using in uh, the .NET, um, excuse me, the, the Windows Store was all written in C Sharp. So I had this sandwich going. I had a C Sharp library at the very bottom that did all the real hard work. I wrote a C++ CLI wrapper. Uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, that's kind of um, C++ syntax that allows you to still call into the CLR directly. So it's kind of a bridge between managed and unmanaged code. So I had a C++ CLR wrapper talking to C Sharp. And then I had a native C, not C++, a C wrapper that talked to the C++ CLI wrapper. That allowed our native customers to use it. Well, in order to expose all of that functionality to that Java customer, I wrote what's called a JNI library. JNI is the native C interface in Java. So it's kind of like the equivalent yeah. of pinvoke for Java. And then I wrote a Java wrapper on top of that. So the Java library called a JNI library, which called a C library, which called a C++ CLI library, which called a C-sharp library. <laughs> um, and we managed to Ouch. package all of that into a jar and get it, and we were able to get it to work on hundreds of thousands of machines that our customers deployed onto. Wow. Um, that's awesome. Honestly, that's a very underrated feat of, of software engineering there, but I'll save it for, save it for another day. <laughs> the, the point being that we were comfortable shipping production quality work and other platforms. The question I think you're really asking is why go through all the trouble of porting something like Akka to .NET when I could have just used Erlang or Scala, right? The answer was, and this was a sort of a, an unfortunate CTO choice that I had to make, and it's one that I hope I never have to make again. I had to choose between the lesser of two evils. Do I take a runtime whose properties I don't fully understand because I've never used it in production and immediately throw it into a high traffic system that's performing under enormous loads without hiring any additional resources to do it because I couldn't afford to? Or do I pour a framework whose complexity I don't fully understand, but I put it onto a runtime that I do understand? And I decided it was ultimately better to understand one thing than to not understand two, basically, even though it meant all this extra expense of porting this framework from Scala to C-sharp, that uh, ultimately the, the uncertainty of how to manage all this technology at large scale under such a short time frame was, was a risk I was not willing to take. So I, I was willing to bet that our ability to port that framework and get it into production grade quality was ultimately going to be a faster and less risky exercise than trying to rewrite, let's say, our all of our backend systems that were that would need to do the marketing automation to use Java or Scala or something like that. That's great. That makes complete sense. I've had the opportunity to work in some some larger companies that had a lot of resources, and that is actually a very common decision if they've got enough money to have an architecture team is to choose to write some of those pieces so they have full control and understanding of them. So I totally get that. It's one of those um, abstract. It's one of those things where if you were working on a stable piece of legacy software that's not being put under a ton of strain by like external customer or market conditions. That's not necessarily a, a decision-making pattern you're all that familiar with as a developer. But once you get into sort of more the architect and like leadership role, 
and you have to start thinking about like systematic risk inside the system. That's where that type of ugliness rears its head a lot. But ultimately, hey, everyone in the .NET ecosystem has benefited from it. You know, we've had like over 50,000 people go through that Aka.NET bootcamp I mentioned earlier. So that's a lot of people using that tool based on that decision we made you know, years ago. And um, this company, Petabridge, kind of got started <laughs> by accident. So that company, that the previous startup, it was called Marked Up Analytics is the name of it. Marked Up died around Thanksgiving 2014 after two and a half years, roughly. We just, we just ran out of money. That was, was the long story short of that. I took about six weeks off, and then I turned around and I founded Petabridge, the, the company that I'm still running today, in January 2015. Because I was getting hit up by early Akadana users on LinkedIn for consulting and help getting Akadana up and running inside their systems. One of our really early customers, uh, we were based in uh, Los Angeles at the time. One of our really other early customers was based in downtown LA. And they were responsible for building software for managing uh, transit systems for large cities. You now, if you've ever installed like the LA Metro app and um, got a push notification when your bus was running late along one of the metro lines... It was their software doing this. And they had rewritten their sort of really detailed analytics and notifications backend uh, to use Aka.net to go and process all this data sent by the, the sort of cell modems that are plugged into those, those fleets of buses for keeping track of their real-time position, uh, how late they were along the routes and all that sort of stuff. And so they were really kind of one of our very first like pilot use cases for making a real business out of this. But uh, that's ultimately what inspired Petabridge and... Uh, you know, since then, our, our user base has grown a lot. The actual technology itself has matured a bunch too. And um, yeah, we're working on trying to uh, add more and more sort of tools that are designed to support our users. We just released, for instance, uh, Akadon at 1.4 back in February. And that added um, the ability to do like in-memory replication inside a cluster in, a, in an eventually consistent way using a special type of data structure called a CRDT, which is a... Uh, conflict-free replicated data type. And then uh, we also added uh, a module called Akadot Cluster Metrics, where you could get CPU and memory and also custom uh, sort of performance metrics about all of your nodes inside a cluster. And so we could create like routers in Akadot.net that could say, send these messages to the nodes with the least busy CPU and that sort of thing. Nice, nice. Well, thanks, Aaron. Back when functional programming was making its resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there and it almost felt like it was on hype. And I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language. It's built on the Erlang virtual machine. And it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily, and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn that is going to make a difference for you and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com. I think we're just about out of time. Uh, we're going to move on to picks. And if you're not familiar with picks, it's just anything that uh, you're interested in uh, nowadays. It doesn't have to be technology related. I often pick TV shows or movies or books or games, anything like that. So we'll go first. And while you can think about what you want to have for your pick, 
And why don't you start us off, Caleb? What's your pick? Yeah, so, uh, right, I picked the Switch and Switch games for several of our podcasts. My family is now playing the Switch more than ever because roughly two weeks ago, I got Animal Crossing New Horizons for my wife. And at first, she she wasn't spending a whole lot of time on it. But then my son and I started playing, and now she's playing it every day. So <laughs> Animal Crossing, uh, it's it's a good distraction from you know what we're dealing with day to day. All right, nice. Yeah, you do like that switch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, Joel. What are you gonna have for your pick? Yeah, I've been uh, learning a new instrument this year, so I picked up bass guitar. I've been playing guitar for many years in garage bands, and uh, my pick this week is the Fender PJ Bass. Is it sorry, Fender PJ Bass? And Fender took <laughs> their old Precision Bass pickup, and uh, and they. Uh, have the uh, precision bass pick up uh, towards the uh, bridge and then, or sorry, towards the neck and then towards the bridge, they have the jazz pickup. And so you can actually switch between them and get two very different tones or hit that mid position and mix them. So you get that classic like P bass rumble or kind of the more of the jazz bass sharper tone. Are so you going to be the really next John Entwistle? Sorry, what was that? Are you going to be the next John Entwistle? <laughs> well, I'm you look a little like him. <laughs> I guess that's a start, right? <laughs> Anybody that doesn't know John Entwistle, it's the bass guitarist for The Who. So, <laughs> all right. So uh, my pick this week is another Netflix show. It's one I just started watching. I found it fairly interesting. It's called Lock and Key, L-O-C-K-E and Key. It's about a family that moves into an old family house, and they start finding these magical keys around the house that do various different things. You know, as you open a door or open some object with the key, it does um, various magical type of things. So if you like uh, fantasy and things like that, uh, do check out on Netflix, Lock and Key. And it's actually based on um, a comic book series. Nice. So nice. if and you like almost, the TV show. Yeah, they've got season one out and they are working on a season two. Cool. So at least enough people liked it to make another season. All right, Aaron, do you have anything that you want to let our listeners know about that, that interests you nowadays? Oh, absolutely. I'm just going to drop a link chat here. So I'm going to talk about whiskey. Um, whiskey. Right. So I'm a Scotch man primarily, but recently I've been introduced to some um, really superb bourbons, actually. So I'm primarily a Scotch drinker, but I happened to stumble into uh, at our local liquor store here in Houston. They were carrying uh, Eagle Rare, which is a rare bourbon from Buffalo Trace Distillery. So it's uh, 10 years old and costs about $29 a bottle. And uh, it's one of the best drinks I've ever had. Absolutely. Okay. Bought a, cool. bought a bottle for my, for my father-in-law. And so I, um, it's, tough to, it's tough to find them. But when you do find one of these, they're, they're not that expensive. And it's a really good buy. And if you're uh, interested, in, um, interested in bourbon or whiskey at all, this is one of those things. You'll just be delighted if you stumble across it at your store. And there's a couple of places you, you can buy it online, too. Definitely uh, recommend you check it out. Nice, nice. So if people want to get in touch with you and have questions, is it best to go through the Yaka.net website or Twitter? Or uh, the Yaka.net website will drop you into our Gitter chat. There's about 1,600 Yaka.net users in there uh, who will be happy to answer your questions. So if you're interested in talking about Yaka.net, I definitely recommend doing that. Uh, you can also drop us a line on our Twitter handle, which is just Yaka, D-O-T-N-E-T on Twitter. Or you can uh, message me. I'm uh, Aaron on the web on Twitter. Great, great. And if our listeners want to reach out to the show or get in touch with me, they can find me on Twitter. It's at .NET Superhero. Follow me. 
uh, learnabout.net, and uh, also make any suggestions that you have for the show. It'd be great. So thanks, Aaron, for your time today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for your time, folks, and um, hope hope you guys enjoy the show. Yeah, we did. I definitely did. Uh, it's definitely something that's that's new to me, but I can already see definite uses where this could to, could uh, be applied for some of the projects that I'm working on. So great. Thank you. Excellent. All right. And All that's right. it for this episode. And please join us on the next episode of adventuresin.net. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.